0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Networks of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Susan Thompson back to the show. Susan is Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies and the author of the wonderful new book, Rwanda, From Genocide to Precarious Peace. The book is a sobering examination of the way the government of Rwanda has imagined the past and tried to manage the present. Susan was on the show a few years back to talk about her first book, Whispering Truth to Power. And her new book displays the same willingness to look at hard truths as did her first. Uh, and so I think I will let Susan uh, elaborate on some of those adjectives as we go along for the moment. Susan, welcome back. And thanks for joining us again on New Books and Genocide Studies.
1: Thanks, Kelly. I'm happy to be here.
0: So it's been a while since you've been on the show. So So maybe you can just... Briefly, reintroduce yourself to the audience and say a little bit about how you got interested in Rwanda.
1: Well, I've uh, been working on Rwanda for a long time. I was there as a UN staff member uh, way back in 1994, quite accidentally, as I write about in the preface to my first book and uh, I elucidate sort of my background for that there and then of course the reception to my first book was quite mixed. Whispering Truth to Power didn't land in the way that I hoped it would Um, and that gave me pause. I didn't really overthink it but I did definitely think about it and it affected my teaching and I thought about Rwanda in a different way. But sort of the plot twist is that Yale approached me to say, Would you write this new book? We're looking for an academic to write a book for a popular audience. So that's what I tried to do with this, this book. So I've continued to work on Rwanda more or less, first as a human rights lawyer. I've only had my PhD uh, since 2009. So I say only because that's not considered a long time, less than 10 years. And, um, yeah, I got tenure last year uh, at Colgate University in upstate New York. So, of course, that is interesting to me because I'm a Canadian. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I'd be living in America, let alone, of course, uh, Trump's America that we're all enjoying right now. My kids, our kids went to school in the States. And um, so I've begun to notice like that soft authoritarianism has turned into more you know, a deeper, more obvious authoritarianism that we see in the United States. Of course, the use of rhetoric, the use of falsehoods and so on, uh my my experience in Rwanda certainly helping me interpret my time in the United States right now.
0: So you mentioned your first book. Can you just say just a, a few sentences about what, what the first book was about?
1: My first book sought to analyze how the Rwandan state, in this case, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF, uses the authority and power of the state to enact or perform reconciliation. So I tried to diagnose state power through the acts of what I called everyday resistance, drawing on Scott, but to understand political power rather than to understand economic hardship, as Scott tried to do. So it's really a study of peasant
0: resistance And so you're, you're a professor of peace and conflict studies. So, so for people who aren't familiar with that field,
1: what does that mean? So peace and conflict studies really asks sort of three big questions. The first one is what is peace and what is war? So we take quite an expansive definition beyond the normal, like political science tropes of negative peace or positive peace to understand peace in people's lives, peace in communities. Um, Peace at the state level, looking at it through the lens of militarization is the first thing. Then, of course, Peace and Conflict Studies tries to understand the drivers of war. So interstate conflict, but also more recently uh, new wars, understanding wars between rebel groups and governments and civil wars. And of course, the dirty wars in the 1970s and 1980s in Latin America. So that's sort of the second big thing. And the third thing that Peace and Conflict Studies really busies itself with is the everyday. So drawing on anthropological understandings of just ordinary people doing ordinary things, how do they produce or reproduce violence, or how do they produce or reproduce modes of peace in their everyday lives?
0: So what kind of interest? So I'm curious, what kind of interest do you get from undergrads? What 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 careers do undergrads who, who who study this, or maybe people who get masters, what do they go on to do? How popular is this as a major? How have you tried to uh, motivate uh, or help undergrads understand why this is important?
1: It's really interesting at Colgate um, because, of course, as a Canadian, the Peace and Conflict Studies program actually attracted me to, to, um, you know, work and live in the United States. It was a big decision um, for my family and and I. Colgate actually has one of the oldest Peace and Conflict Studies programs in the United States. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary, actually, um, next year. And we get students who actually come to us, they want to understand how people survive war, how people live in conflict. Um, we deal with anti-racism work. We are, you know, critical studies. So it's a mixture at Colgate of critical security studies, political science, anthropology, history. So we are one of the most popular majors on campus. So I, Our bigger problem is keeping student, you know, can we do we have enough staff to manage the number of majors we have? So fortunately... We do, but we have, you know, a lot of students who minor and a lot of students who come through to take our war and lived experience course. So we teach a 200 level course called Practices of Peace and Conflict. And it's really about that felt or that, you know, what academics would call that embodied experience of war. Uh, So I think, you know, so we've had a real uptick in the last couple of years because there's a certain portion of campus that's quite taken with, you know, how did Trump come to be? And, of course, for a 20-year-old, that's a really compelling question. So we take a different approach than political science. We focus on the individual and the community.
0: Well, you now have um, academics all over the country and perhaps the continent gnashing and weeping, gnashing their teeth and weeping as they recognize that you have growing numbers. And many of us are wrestling with the fact that uh, enrollments in history have plummeted over the past four years and trying to, to figure out what to do.
1: It's pretty interesting. I mean, at okay, Colgate, our history numbers are actually solid. And one thing that has, um, I think, our history department has done well, is that they build a sense of academic community for students. And I think that's, you know, something that the small liberal arts college and Colgate in particular, you know, does well. If you're going to attract students, you need to engage the whole student, not just the student's intellectual life.
0: No, that's a good point. That's a good point. You said that Yale came to you, so I wonder how writing a book for a popular audience is or isn't different from writing a book that's aimed primarily at academics.
1: Oh, Kelly, you're killing me right now. It was so hard. (laughs) It was so hard. So I got the offer and I was like, well, this can't be a good idea because I, the, my, um, My Wisconsin book, The Whispering Truth to Power book, had literally just come out, I think, in November. And then, like, in February of the next year, so February 2014, uh, Yale, an editor, Phoebe Clapham, had approached me. I was like, wait a second, you're Christopher Clapham's relative. He said, yeah, I'm his daughter. Oh, okay. So she said, listen, I can see that, like, you know, you're tentative, you're not sure come meet me. She was in the United States visiting from the London office and we met actually in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is where I did one of my postdocs. So she drove up from New Haven. I drove over from uh, Hamilton, New York and we had dinner and she convinced me of like the power of writing narrative for a popular audience. And of course I had Gorbich's book in mind. I think Philip Gorbich's book, we you know, we wish to inform you is such a problematic book and it really does irk me as a scholar that his is um, sort of the go-to book on Rwanda still, even though it's full of historical inaccuracies and is quite glowing on um, the human rights abuses and other abuses of the ruling Rwandan Patriotic Front. So back and forth with Phoebe, she said, "Listen, you know, we'll give you a year, two years." I was like, "Oh yeah, I can write a book in two years." Because she wasn't proposing new field work; it was like a synthesis of the literature and, like, you know, how has the RPF governed? So I agreed. I thought that would be really simple. And the first summer after I signed the contract, um, I stared at my computer screen sort of day in and day out for three months. Summer passed. I had no words. (laughs) They reached out to me at Christmas, you know, respecting the academic calendar. Hey, what's up? Well, still nothing. Um, Okay. And then Phoebe left. I got a new editor. And uh, I finally got a leave. Colgate gave me a leave to really think about the book. And then I just started drafting. And the first draft was somewhere in the neighborhood of 340,000 words. And that's what I sent out to peer review. So thank you to my peer reviewers. I know who all of them are. So I will not name them, but um, they did me a great service. And then of course, you know, that ever constant reminder for writers, we must be prepared to cut. And I did, I started cutting. So it took me about two years just to pare it back. And of course, new things had happened and, I was really struggling because, of course, you know from my first book that the government, you know, asked me to leave. I haven't been back to Rwanda since 2010. And if you think of my method, I'm really interested in how Rwandans in the hills, poor rural people manage. How are they living their lives? And I hadn't really, you know, been in the field to talk to anybody. So I spent time and this is how I sort of bought my extensions from the press. I'm in touch with my research assistants. It's slow going because, of course, we have to manage our communications. And over time, I developed a body of contacts, new contacts, and people who I could talk to and people who would go into Rwanda and do interviews for me. So that really invigorated the writing. And, of course, I spent the, you know, the last three summers, summers 2015, 16, and 17, preparing to have the book released um, in the States in April 2018. So it was it was tough. Because, of course, you know from having read the book, there's no theory section, there's no method section, that sort of academic um, meat is in the footnotes, and the ordinary reader, I know I showed it to my sister, and she's like, I'm not reading that thing, it looks too heavy, I'm like, okay, fair enough, uh, she picked up my last book, the title's too long, also fair, Um and then I, I gave her the interest Said the intro is only eight pages long. I'm sure you can handle it. And she read it. Her son read it. My brother read it. And I was like, okay, so maybe like an average audience, you know, will want to read this book. And um, that's, that's sort of how I framed it. Like, If you read only the intro and you read only the conclusion, you will know the state of Rwanda from my perspective. Um, all the middle stuff is really... How did the genocide happen? Where did the RPF come from? Why do they have the politics they have? How do myths of history work for or against certain groups of people? And then, of course, working very hard to document things that the current government has tried to expunge, like the Kibayo massacres. I spent almost three months writing like eight paragraphs, basically, because I had to double check. And it became a really fun time because people who had been in Rwanda in 1994 through to 2000 and that so-called emergency period it it soon spread amongst the various networks that I was writing this book and they would send me information so you also see from the plate I have some very interesting photos that I got because you know I hear you writing a book can I tell you a story and I became a contact for people so what very slow to start very long to finish but like absolutely thrilling in the middle I would say that for sure
0: a number of the questions that I have in my Word document in front of me. Um, so let's start going through them and 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 most of the time I think we'll spend after the genocide is completed. But I wanted to start with just a couple questions um, about the genocide and its background. And 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 maybe the first one is, is to ask you um many people who read about this genocide read books that were written in the late 90s or, or very early 2000s. W- what do we now understand about the genocide in Rwanda that we didn't know um, in, in in that period where some of those initial books were being written?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great question. In my own two cents, I draw from the work of Andre Gishawa, uh, Scott Strauss, and others. In the last five years or so, a new consensus has emerged that the genocide was actually not pre-planned, it happened after the fact that Berimana's plane had gone down, the scrambling, the roadblocks. Like it looked like what we understand to be genocide, but then you begin to get this careful historical, careful political science, careful sociology of uh, people who've worked in the Central um, Africa region for decades showing systematically how Hutu extremists actually took over the government and plan the genocide in the days after. So, of course, that when I first heard it, I was like, that can't be right because, I mean, the roadblocks and the piles of bodies and the things that we know from this literature that emerged in the late 80s or late 1990s and into the early 2000s, as you noted. And then, of course, when you start to go through the evidence and you start to go through the arguments of these various authors that I just mentioned, you see how... In the context of civil war, and I think that's something that a lot of us forget was the intensity of the civil war. And it started in October 1990. The RPF actually wasn't strong enough, mostly because of outside support from France and others, to overthrow hiberimana 's army. Hiberimana obviously the second um, post-colonial president, he took um, office in 1973, ruled until his death in 1994, ran this authoritarian system. And we make this mistake as scholars that authoritarianism is total and that it's vertical and that it weighs heavily. But there was actually lots of jockeying and lots of improvising, as the work of Lars Waldorf shows at the local level, both during uh, the Civil War and then in the lead up to the genocide. And then, of course, you get the work of Scott Strauss and Leanne Fuji, and they show you that people killed people killed in impressive numbers. But they didn't always kill for ethnic reasons, which is, of course, what journalism told us, you know, immediately after the genocide. Prunyeh, of course, his first book came out in 1995. Mahmoud Mamdani had a book come out in 1998. Philip Gorovich was there just a few years later. So we're still sort of arguing as scholars against this consensus that who to kill because of ethnic hatred, and they did so because the father of the nation, Haibari was killed in a plane crash. It's far more nuanced. And I think anyone who's serious about, you know, the question of was the genocide preplanned or not really needs to read Scott Strauss's new work, Making an Unmaking Nation, and Andrei Kishawa's work on war and genocide. The evidence for me is overwhelming, And of course, um, it's not at all what the current government wants you to believe, because they want you to believe as outsiders, people like you and me, that they actually not only stopped the genocide, but are the heroes for doing so. And the evidence is increasingly clear that they helped precipitate the genocide. Maybe they didn't know, and I would argue they didn't know, that something as abstract or as life-changing as genocide would actually happen. I don't think they had that in mind. But the loss of civilian life in great numbers was acceptable to the RPF. And that's, I think, a bitter pill to swallow, especially, you know, you're, I'm, you're walking around and President Kagame is the Forbes magazine African of the Year and stuff like it's hard to gel these things. But um, I think with careful pause and I tried to do this in my chapter, I don't believe the genocide was preplanned. And for me, that's the one of the key debates in the field right now.
0: So you, so you mentioned the RPF and what they expected. So so can you say a little bit about where the RPF comes from and, and how Paul Kagame came to lead it?
1: Yeah, that's also an interesting um, um, angle that a lot of people overlook. He actually comes from a royal lineage. So historically, hmm. Rwanda was ruled by a royal court. The Germans and the Belgians found this royal court. They grafted their racist ideas onto the court, making Tutsi royalists, not all Tutsi, just elite Tutsi attached to the court as the natural rulers of Rwanda. He was born, Paul Kagame, at the end of the colonial period when there was actually a tussle between new Hutu counter-elite politicians, um, members of the Catholic Church trained by the Belgians, Belgian missionaries in particular, to begin to argue for their rights. And Kagame's family as a royal family, like other royal families in the lineages, fled. They fled into the Congo, they fled to Uganda, they fled to Brunei, they fled to all corners um, of Rwanda, into neighboring countries. That, in some sense, is the beginning of um, Paul Kagame's political awakening or his political consciousness. He knew, and Stephen Kinzer writes about this very clearly in his book, his biography, of Kagami, That he knew as a young child living in southern Uganda that he didn't have rights as a citizen and that he would one day return to Rwanda. And of course, as you'll see in the book, this shapes his politics. He builds relationships. He gets um, invited as part of Museveni's national resistance movement to participate in overthrowing Abote uh, and turning into, you know, Ugandan. The Rwandans in Uganda thought that Museveni um, would reward them with citizenship. He didn't, and it galvanized a large group of the RPF, which was called the Rwanda Welfare Association and was dormant all through the 80s. But, they, you know, it got serious in the late 1980s, early 1990s as calls for democratization from the West, Flew across Africa Uganda was affected Rwanda was affected Kagame and others of his rank saw their opening and they returned to Rwanda with you know, with the intention to overthrow they just used that soft you know we we want democracy we want to return to our rights and what most observers forgot is that Tutsi rights are not really including Hutu rights so you so I, I have begun and I do this at the end of my book to see, the RPF and the elites that it supports to see them in an extremist position insofar as their citizenship, their sense of belonging, their economic welfare is superior to that of the, the majority of
0: Rwandans. So so that kind of gets at my next question is is how did Kagame and, and the people around him, how did they understand And, and this is a two-part question? So we'll do this one first. How did they understand the history of Rwanda? Their, their refugees living outside of the country what did they remember about what the Tutsi role in Rwanda was and, and how they were expelled?
1: So I think that one is. Or like, not
0: expelled, yeah, but ran away.
1: Yeah, or fled. I think they some of them do, some lineages, I would say, um, consider themselves expelled. I think um, you can find in the work of Jan Vincena, um, Catherine Newberry, and others in English this historical legacy of considering yourself as a Tutsi elite to be a naturally superior ruler. And DeForge in particular argues very clearly that they did believe themselves to be superior, not by merit or not by training, but by birth. And I think that um, really shapes the politics of Paul Kagame. And you see shades of this, I argue, in the book when he calls out Patrick Karageya, his former comrade, in the bush with him in the late 80s and into the 90s, helped end the genocide, betrayed him in 2010. The way that Kagame spoke to him and framed him as a dog and distanced himself from the, the dirty work of killing Karageya, he was killed in a, a, a hotel room in uh, New Year's Eve 2016 in Johannesburg, Is shades of the intrigues that you see reported by Deforge, Vancina, and others in the formation of the Rwandan state. So there's this long arc of Tutsi superiority that refugees like Kagame and others actually, I believe, embody. And it's hard to write about it or talk about this because, of course, it's just a feeling that I have. I don't have any empirical evidence. Kagame himself would never talk to me about this. But you can speak military officials and others who've gone into exile. So obviously with some caution and you see these childhood motivations and these childhood insults shape their adult politics in in ways that have been profound for the history of Rwanda. Because of course, if they are the rightful rulers of Rwanda, then of course they would take up armed struggle to return to their rightful position as Rwanda's rulers. And as you know, from reading the book, the policies of unity of economic development of justice, of reconciliation, are designed to remind who to who is actually taking care of them, and we see this also in the work of Anu Chakravarty, uh, Bert Engleire, Maria de Rosier, Andre Pertikova. Many scholars have written about you know that little nuance in in profound ways. I think it's really a a, a history of superiority.
0: And then the second part of the question, how did they understand the history of the genocide and, and what lessons, um, maybe not lessons, but what have they learned from the way they understand the genocide that shapes the way they rule?
1: So That's a really interesting question. And I try to address this in the book, and I'm not sure I'm successful because I think we're still learning. I think that's a question that we'll probably know better in 2040 or 2050. Um, but, but my take now is that the government long knew that it was going to craft itself in an ethnic way. So Tutsi are fighting Hutu. And this, of course, Strauss shows very clearly in his 2015 book that in that framing of Hutu versus Tutsi, you have this idea of the practice genocide in 1959, which is you know partly an answer to my first question. The way that the RPF, understands itself as a a minority within a minority. So Tutsi elites within a Tutsi minority, but also a minority within a Hutu ethnic majority, I think shapes their um, politics. The politics are patronage or lineage based. You have this highly centralized system in which patronage is managed, not ethnically, but in terms of loyalty to the RPF family. So they took this policy of eliminating ethnicity because of course they had to, it does two things. It keeps donors and other internationals from knowing if they're dealing with a Hutu or a Tutsi. And then the question becomes, are you RPF Boyle or not? And of course, because there's this overarching lack of trust in many Hutu, not all, but many, they've instituted this Um, oath, you must take an oath. And if you break the oath, then you must die. It's not a very complicated oath. Philip Retchens actually writes about it in his 2013 book on political governance in Rwanda. So you see a Tutsi elite who has sort of reimagined the genocide, not from an empirical basis, but from the myths of um, scapegoating and exclusion and marginality that these elites believe that they have experienced without due accord to how Tutsi, poor Tutsi in particular, inside the country lived their lives. So, of course, that was one of the axes of the genocide. You must kill all Tutsi, regardless if they're RPF, if they're a returnee, if they're your neighbor. And that ability of the Hyberimana government to turn Tutsi into a singular other is what the RPF is doing. Just it's m- more difficult to see. So you see this deep continuity. There's no nothing new. About the way that power operates in present day Rwanda, despite protests to the to otherwise by the RPF.
0: So what? So you write it that uh, the RPF had a, or, or Rwanda maybe had a, had its a, what you call a season of hope in the period after the genocide until maybe the late 1990s, very end of the 1990s. How does the how does the RPF see the challenges facing it in that period immediately after the genocide, and how does it try and respond to those challenges?
1: That's a good question as well. I think what you have so the season of hope is actually a skeptical um, title on my part. So it shows very quickly in the chapter that the praise and the hope and the promise of a different way of doing business, a different way of government, a different respect for ethnic uh, difference and identity were words. It wasn't actually practice. So the RPF practice, you know, astute image management, to use the language of um, Johan Potir in his book, Reimagining Rwanda. So the government played the international community against domestic constituencies to assure its primacy. And as I show in that chapter, they eliminated people who were questioning the new vision. Others who said, hey, I didn't fight in the bush so we could behave this way. And they were obviously, you know, expelled or expunged in some cases, written very poignantly by um, Joseph Severenzi He wrote a memoir about his experience of being the first Speaker of Parliament, and of course, eventually seeking exile in the United States. So the season of hope was a rhetorical reality. It quickly was not an empirical reality. And the RPF was like, and what of it? We suffered genocide. You didn't.
0: So please back up. So I can imagine an RPF uh, advocate or member uh, posing a response in the following way, that, that in the, the period after we took over, uh, we faced violence uh, or the threat of violence from people who had fled Rwanda to especially the Congo. Um, and we faced this, um, I don't know if uprising is the right word, but violence in the Northwest Uh, And we had to uh, we had to act in a way that prevented a a continuation or recurrence of the genocidal violence. Um, Is is that a genuine response? Do they really feel uh, embattled or threatened by um, that kind of opposition Um, or, or do they use that for political toward political ends?
1: I think you've hit the nail on the head. That is a key challenge. And when RPF officials say to you or to me or to anybody, you don't understand the magnitude of what we suffered. That's absolutely right. I don't know the magnitude of what, you're su- what you suffered, but I can also see the ways in which you are recreating the suffering that you claim to be undoing. So I think if the RPF had been more honest about their the insecurities and the tensions that they felt... Uh, perhaps the international community would have behaved differently. I doubt it. I don't have a lot of faith in the international community. And I think, you know, the international community, well, we have a lot of accounting to do in the Rwandan case. Like genocide did happen on our watch. It just didn't happen in the way that we think it happened. Uh, But I think... The RPF, you know, it's a learning organization. Its members are very keen to understand what outsiders think, but they're also allergic to criticism. So the kind of conversation we're having right now is very hard to have with um, senior members of government. And, of course, that goes to, I think, bigger fissures in Rwanda studies you're either for the government 100% or you're against the government 100% and they perceive you, you're either for or against. And those who are for, they claim, you know, I don't know what you people who are against are all worked up, about. I can talk to them. They tell me things. Okay. But what if you're not asking the questions that actually move us along to get them to reflect on their human rights abuses What if we're not moving them along to understand the hardships of their economic policies? What if we were more forthright about the ways in which the country is actually um, approaching famine in some region in which school kids aren't going to school? Like, why do you have to cook the statistics? That ability to sort of pull the wool over the eyes of certain kind of. Um, actors, whether domestic or international, has its roots, I think, in that season of hope. Because we turned a blind eye to the... Ex- so yes, of course, there were genocidaires who fled to Congo. But not every Rwandan who fled to Congo was guilty. So they took this, you know, what Catherine Newberry calls a corporate understanding of ethnicity. So it's just one homogenous group. Hutu or this, Tutsi or that. The RPF didn't step back and see regional difference, linguistic difference, class difference, gender difference, you know, religious difference in the way that they could have. Instead, they hardened and I think sharpened pre-existing divisions. And of course, when you say you can't talk about ethnicity, which was law by 1998, how can you then talk about harms and violence you experienced on the basis of your ethnicity? So even Tutsi survivors were like, "What? Ha, how are we supposed to talk about our pain? So I think they made a lot of mistakes. And so I called that chapter Season of Hope because, you know, internationals were hopeful. We were all hopeful. But, um, you know, and the RPF thought they could consolidate their vision for the country in that short time. But of course, there are still military elements outside the country. There still are political opponents. And it goes back for me to that superiority that, RPF elites really feel, don't challenge us. We know what's best for our country.
0: You, um, there, there's the distinction you draw in the book between old caseload returnees, I hope returnees is the right word, and, and new caseload returnees. Can you explain what that means and, and maybe say something about the different challenges each faced?
1: Yeah, so you have these old caseload returnees who came back um, in the 1970s and 1980s after this exodus of um, 1959. They returned for various reasons, many of them because Hiberimana himself, after throwing the first post colonial president, Kaibanda, issued, you know, ushered, I guess is a better word, in a period of relative calm, politically connected. Tutsi agreed in this sort of unspoken pact not to be political, but to pursue economic opportunities. So there was a relative period of calm. Some Tutsi families returned in this period. You then have this mass exodus of um, Rwandans of all ethnic stripes, Hutu, Tutsi, and Twa, who fled uh, as RPF and the Haberimana army fought, you know, in what would be eventually come the genocide. So they fled mostly to... Congo, but also into Tanzania, some into Uganda, some into Burundi. Those are the new cases. So you have the new after 94 and the old before 1994. And of course, um, old case refugees came back in great numbers after the genocide, believing the rhetoric of the RPF, believing that there would be opportunities and that Rwanda would be theirs, but many of them. Uh, Struggled. They didn't always find the support networks, political networks, the economic networks that they needed to do well. And of course, the um, new caseload returnees had often also, because they were more rural and more poor, less educated, they struggled to reclaim land. So a lot of those um, old caseload returnees and those, and they came in great numbers, almost a million came by the end of 1994, had taken their land, had squatted on their land. And the assumption was, and this emerged immediately after the genocide in that, you know, air quoted season of hope. If the land was occupied, then the people must be dead. So those who came back to make claims um, found themselves marginalized. So you had resentment over land. And of course, it was a massive issue for the RPF. How do you settle? So you've lost a million, a million people are dead, a million people returned. You've got the International Community Completely reconfiguring the economy, and you know, three million people, these new caseload are dispossessed of their land and have no way to till. How are you going to feed them? How are you going to clothe them? How are you going to employ them? How are you going to school them? So, it was a massive problem that wasn't well managed, in part because the international community was unprepared to fund um, the vision of the
0: RPF. The RPF and Kagame clearly has a vision for where it wants Rwanda to go. So where does the RPF want Rwanda to be in 2050?
1: The aspiration in 2050 is that it will be a uh, medium income country. Everyone will be educated. Everyone will have healthcare. Everyone will be gainfully employed. And that, of course, uh, this economic growth is only possible under the RPF. So they have actually... Um, committed, you know, big rhetoric, very few outcomes so far into these investments with the IMF, with the World Bank, to propel Rwanda from you know a, um, an annual income GDP of seven hundred dollars to twelve thousand um, dollars per person in in twenty fifty. So basically, in thirty years. So we see over the course of the twenty years from ninety four. Um, to 2014 that the the economy only added about $50 in GDP per person. So there's still a lot to be done. Uh, I think there still is a lot of goodwill. Rwanda could benefit if it had local manufacturing, but fundamentally it doesn't have resources much beyond its people. So coffee, tea, flowers, the government is trying to diversify the economy, but this generally has not yielded foreign exchange. Um, International companies, despite the doing, you know, the the high ranking in the World Bank ease of doing business index, have not landed in Kigali. So Kigali is, I, I think it's a facade. You have these new vanity projects to show wealth, to, you know, demonstrate wealth. But we don't actually see electricity. We don't see Internet connectivity. We don't see sanitation. We don't see water. We don't see... Um, School enrollments, like the jobs that Rwanda needs to propel itself to that level of middle income status, those jobs can't be filled by Rwandans. The education system isn't quite up to it yet. So the heart, the horse is before the cart, to put it that way.
0: So as I read your book, and in some sense, and, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but in some sense, I got the, I, I should say, I got the sense that the RPF sees the vision for the future as an urban vision. Am I reading that wrong?
1: I don't think you're reading it wrong, but I think my critique is that such a vision won't stand when most people are, you know, speak only Kinyarwanda in most cases, operate on very tiny plots of land. And it is for all intents and purpose, still a rural country despite the global trends toward urbanization all over the world. Kigali itself, I would argue has closed ranks and Kigali is really meant for RPF loyalists and those who are productively contributing to the economy. So as you know, probably from the other books that you've um, read over the course of the last couple of years, you can't enter Kigali without a helmet on your head, on your motorbike. Um, you must enter by a motor, uh, what do you call it, taxi bus. You must wear covered shoes. You can't wear flip-flops. Uh, you can't have a plastic bag, you must pay your market stall fees before setting up your market stand. So that excludes certain people. So there's just this systematic exclusion of people who don't fit the model of a new, modern Rwanda. So I think Kigali is growing, definitely. And it's growing in a planned way. But is it growing in a sustainable way? I would say no.
0: So let's switch gears a little bit. How how has the RPF tried to craft a public memory of the genocide? um, And and, and for what purpose?
1: So I think their public memory is intended to glorify their role in stopping the genocide. They do claim the mantle of never again, never again will there be genocide on our watch. Lots of uh, relationships with... um, Jews from Israel in particular, but Jewish communities in particular, framing it for some communities as a Holocaust. That's not widely used in the literature, but you do see it. Uh, And the public memory is one that all Hutu rose up and killed all Tutsi. And, of course, that is a compelling sort of singular vision. But you then have these memorials, whether it's the public official memorials like... uh, the seven of them that are, are across the country where they've lined the bodies and they put them on display, those ones tell a particular image of RPF hero. You know, hero status. They stopped the war. They returned the rights to Rwandans. Most Rwandans have not actually been in these museums, in these public memorials. And we see in the last couple years where the government has. Um, reconfigured, for example, the museum where Hyberimana's plane went down. That plane has become a museum since 2016. Michaela Wrong writes about that. And of course, you have a situation in which most people don't see themselves in the memorial, but it does tell a very compelling, we say no to genocide story. And of course, my argument in the book is that not only is this not producing a sense of justice, a sense of closure, a sense of reconciliation, it's in fact just the language of never again is a political device to deflect criticism and keep aid dollars flowing.
0: Yeah, a couple of follow-ups that, that stem from that. One is, you talked briefly about the, um, my phrase, not yours, but I hope it represents your your ideas, the reality and political usefulness of genocide denial. Um how prevalent is this genocide denial and how does the RPF exploit it or respond to it?
1: I think it's fairly prominent. It's legislated at the level of the constitution. So it takes that authority of law, the weight of law, they use it largely to control individuals who spend a lot of time in Congo. So if you're going back and forth to Congo, they will stop you and say, well, we think you've denied the genocide. Um, Can you say more? (laughs) Like how? How did I do that? Doesn't matter. Just come with me. So people get um, accused, and then they are questioned on that whether or not there's any validity to it or not is a different issue. I think the more compelling use of it, more recently in particular, is to control political opponents. So those who enter the public domain and wish to question the RPF or you know ask questions, even you know why are you making these choices? What about these policies? What about these people? If you ask, how come the genocide memorials don't talk about who to who tried to rescue, which of course they do now, but they didn't, for example, in 98, when the genocide denial law came in, that would be considered genocide denial. So anytime there's like a prickly subject, the subject that the government doesn't want made public, they will allege genocide denial. So of course, it's morphed more recently into treason. So if you're questioning the vision of the RPF, it can be worse than genocide denial. It can be treason. And we see that um, these allegations against the two presidential candidates, both women, um, Victoire Ingabire, and um, more recently, um, Dionne Regara, who was just actually acquitted last week. And, you know, Twitter's like, yeah, well, the judicial system is working. And of course, I don't think we have enough information to quite. Is it working? Because it, it produces, uh, you know, she's still neutered. She's not a political candidate. So you see. When it appears that someone has a political base or they're becoming political active, genocide denial becomes the way that you begin to systematically remove them from from public life. And really public life is controlled um, by the RPF. You know, Twitter is managed, social media is managed, the newspapers are government-run. There's a facade of multi-partyism, but they all operate in this consortium. So genocide denial sort of is the cloud that hangs over all of these structures.
0: So the second follow-up, I guess, is my sense is that there's a reasonable amount of tourism to Rwanda that is an attempt to interact with the memory of the genocide, to visit memorials, to try and get a feeling for the country when, when the motivation, motivating reason for that tourism is, is the genocide. How do, first of all, do you think that's true? And second of all, how do ordinary Rwandans respond to these tourists who are here to, to, who are in Rwanda to remember a past of Rwanda rather than to visit the present Rwanda?
1: That's such an interesting question. I don't actually think that many people go for genocide tourism at the present moment. I think, you know, they did in 2000, they probably did in 2005, maybe even 2010. But, you know, in the last five to eight years, the government through the Rwandan Development Board, through the Tourism Board, has systematically said we are uh, a destination um, that you can see gorillas Of course, we have beautiful flora. We have beautiful fauna. They brought uh, back, I think, elephants and lions. Definitely lions, but they brought back wildlife from other African countries, South Africa, most recently, to begin to repopulate game. So it's it's sold as a boutique destination for Europeans. Um, The numbers are not, I think, yielding fruit in the way that the government um, would want. And I, I would argue that the RPF likes to keep the genocide front and present for domestic audiences. Like, don't forget that we stopped it. Don't forget that we gave you everything that you have since 1994. And I think for internationals now, not always, but in the last five years or so, it has been, you know, we are an eco boutique. And if you, you know, there are PR firms and others that the government have hired to sort of scrub the inter- internet. Like tourism comes up before genocide in the in the more recent hits. And that is, uh, you know, these are high value tourists and that's what they want. But I think the numbers are quite low. I think, yeah, I think the numbers are quite low.
0: Um, you mentioned two female candidates, I think for president. One of the things that Rwanda is known for is, is in gender inclusivity in politics. And, and you have some things to say about that in, in your book. You, would you like to talk about how you see that, um, the, the role of women in, in, in Rwandan politics and just Rwandan society now?
1: I think women are making inroads in society more broadly. Um, it's not without its challenges. Domestic abuse, you know, is up allegedly. We don't have good numbers before the genocide. So can you compare it? Um, the numbers of women in parliament are definitely high, but that uh, uh, eludes the question who actually makes decisions, who actually represents their constituencies. And I think, you know, most of the women in politics are either RPF affiliated or affiliated to parties that are in this coalition with the RPF. So they operate by grace of this coalition. They don't visit their local constituencies, but I think that's true of men as well. Politics is a Kigali game. And and women are, I think, you know, I would argue the same. If I'm honest about Justin Trudeau's Canada, he claims a feminist political, uh, a feminist foreign policy. It's just window dressing. So until we get to you know, who makes the decisions, how are the decisions made, where is the money going? Who's managing the money? You know these questions. You can have all the gender equality you want. It's so interesting too with Ethiopia. Most recently, like of course they also have high numbers of women, but also it, it doesn't address the question of well, are they members of the ruling party? How is the ruling party governing? How are local constituencies responding to women? So it sits on this myth for me that um, you know women are more peaceful and women spend their money better, and that, that's just neoliberal. Thinking women aren't more peaceful. <laughs> women aren't less aggressive than men. We're socially scripted to be more peaceful and be so less, you know, more nurturing and so on than men. But it, it, there's, you know, and there's no feminist movement in Rwanda. That would be a key difference with, you know, Canada or Britain, where you know gender parity has also been used. Sweden women um, don't participate in feminist politics in Rwanda because there's still big sanction against that. So I think until we begin to see a feminist movement in civil society. will see those women move into government rather than coming from government, going to civil society. Because as we both know, that's very uncommon. You rarely leave government with the ups and downs of civil society. And Rwanda has, you know, very few church leaders are women. So women in authority positions, not in contact with people at the highest level of the government. And they have no decision-making power, might my take.
0: So in your conclusion, uh, you asked the question about whether genocide is likely again in the near future. What's your answer?
1: I said that I don't see anything akin to genocide happening anytime soon. Uh, I think the ethnic politics have been muted. We don't really see any outside forces that are able to mount a military challenge like the RPF did in 1990. I do believe that the present government could be producing divisions within society that could become militarized. But until we have that outside shock, I think Rwanda will chug along maybe less of a donor darling as, you know, new crises come up. Yemen, of course, is in the news more recently. Uh, And you see less of Rwanda in the day to day, particularly under the Trump administration. But I, I think historically Rwanda has these mass, you know, mass episodes of political violence whether or not you want to call them genocide every 30 to 50 years. So I, so I don't see, you know, so there there will be pressures over time, and I think we need to watch outside military movement. And for now, there is a political opposition in the diaspora. They're not armed. They don't have, you know, Kagame still has the loyalty of um, his troops. I think I think we're in for... Um, a long period of what, you know, IR scholars would call stability. Is it peaceful from the perspective of peace and conflict cities? Probably not. People will be hungry. Um, People will be underemployed, unemployed, Um, but it won't be genocide. It will be structural violence, you know, violence that comes because you're not educated or you're not able to feed your children or you can't get healthcare when you're sick. That kind of violence I think will um, proliferate for the next 20, 30, 40 years.
0: Well, it's a fascinating book, and I, I recommend it to to the audience um go out and, and get it and read it carefully um We always end with the same couple of questions, although I have a twist on the first one um so <laughs> uh it 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 shouldn't be uh, don't be scared i don't think um okay okay so so I would say um many of the people that you've listed so far. Uh, and you've reeled off a, a, an impressive range of, of scholars and books, many of them we've had on the podcast before. But I always ask people, mm-hmm. um, is there a text or whether that's a book or a movie or a documentary or whatever uh, that was meaningful to you, something you read or something that you watched or uh, something that the people in the audience can read or watch too, to get some sense of what was meaningful for you and and along with that, I'd act this as the twist i wonder I wonder what inspired you or who inspired you as as you were working on this book so so kind of two parts, but kind of in a link what what would you recommend?
1: No, that's such a good question. So I am a big fan of novels. So I think novels um, really help you become a good writer, help you empathize with others. And I try to teach novels. And it's so interesting because students of late have been choosing um, nonfiction journalism, <laughs> presenting it as a novel. So I have read some anth- some history that reads like a novel. So one book that really inspired me was Jan van Being Colonized, he wrote a book in 2010 about the experience of the kuba people of congo i think from like 1860 to 1960 or something like this and he writes it just like it's like a novel and of course it's not it's his take on what it feels like to be colonized from the perspective of those who like found the kuba in the in congo began to settle did the politics but went back to Europe, came back to the periphery, went back to the metropole, looked at the river. Like, it's just such a fascinating read, and it reads like a novel. And another book that I read, I like to read it a lot because I get so much out of it, depending on my mood, is the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. It's such a strange book, but she clearly, and I disagree with like how she frames a lot of it, but like her affection and care for the Congolese people, she was there as a missionary child. Her parents were missionaries in the Congo in the 1960s. So she writes this novel from like her childhood perspective, developing these white characters. And of course, it's a great teaching book because you've got like the white savior and you've got the white guilt. And it's it's just, and you know, you've got the missionary overtone and the stubbornness of you believe in the Bible. So empirical evidence means nothing to you, which is the father in her book. So those are two books that um, I think helped me a lot when I was Reading. I also read a lot of government reports, whether they were US government or Rwandan government. And it's um, so interesting just to see like the rhetorical devices and the discourse analysis, of, like how governments present themselves. So I was just like, sort of, would chuckle to myself I don't know if I'd recommend one. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Are they novels? No, no, they're reports. <laughs> but it's still interesting to think of like these different genres all feeding sort of in, into into the text. Because of course I think, you know, as I say to my own kids, like we are who we read. I don't want you reading comic books. Please read Dickens. All my kids would yell at me about that, but as they should, I guess. <laughs> and then you asked a question about inspiration. Yeah, I don't remember the second part of the question.
0: Uh that that was more or less it, so you've oh, okay, unless you want to add somebody um, but but the second question may or may not be welcome depending on um, your point of view, but it's a simple one. What are you working on now?
1: So I'm actually been working for the past four or five years in concert with this book on um, study of refugee women living in Cape Town, South Africa. So I've looked mostly at Congolese. There's quite a lively Congolese community here, and my eventual goal, it's probably a ten-year project, is I would like to compare the lived experiences of flight and resettlement and the, the networks that you know women in particular build for themselves. Comparing Nairobi, Cape Town, as two major African cities, and then to compare. An American city, which is Syracuse, which is just about 35 miles north where I live in Hamilton, New York, there's a very large and flourishing Congolese community there. So I want, to, I want to look at their experiences of flight resettlement and their hopes and their dreams and their challenges, you know, their ups and downs, so to speak, in these three quite different locations, but ultimately urban locations. So it's a real shift for me because, A, it's refugees, B, it's urban so my work done until now has been um, largely rural and I, you know, I don't speak a Congolese language. So it's been really interesting to like understand the dynamics between those who speak Lingala from Kinshasa and those who have been affected by violence in Kivu. And it's just been, it's been a real time. It's been a really interesting um, piece of work. So that's what I'm working on now.
0: Well, that's a fascinating project. And I hope, um, I hope that it doesn't take 10 years, although I can easily understand how it would. Uh, But when it's done, I hope you'll come back and um, join us on the show. But for now, thank you so much for uh, being with us. Really appreciate it. And um, I know you're in South Africa for a while. So have a, a, a um, a great sabbatical.
1: Thank you so much, Kelly. It's been great.